Welcome to This is the Author, where authors talk about narrating their audiobooks. In this episode, meet Pulitzer Prize-winning author John Meacham, Professor Matthew Stanley, and award-winning children's writer Steve Schenken. History is the driving force behind each of these authors' audiobooks. From American music to Amelia Earhart to World War I, these authors use storytelling as a way to engage and connect listeners to the past. Even non-history buffs will fall in love with history after listening to each author talk about his audiobook. Then, find out which author would cast Helen Mirren as his audiobook narrator. Enjoy. Hi, this is John Meacham, the co-author of Songs of America, Patriotism, Protest, and the Music That Made a Nation, also written with Tim McGraw. I live in Nashville, as does Tim McGraw, and I wrote a book last year called The Soul of America, in which I discussed different eras of particular political ferocity, uh, moments of great division, great partisanship, and Tim around last Christmas, raised the question with me, which I had never considered, actually, which is, had I ever thought about how music played a role in the eras I've written about? And honestly, I hadn't much. It was the question that ignited a process that led to the book, which was a sense of trying to explore the extent to which music was a mirror and or a maker of the manners and morals, the sensibilities of a given period of historical significance. And what you find, what we found when we climbed inside it, is that in fact, music is a remarkably revealing barometer of the political feelings, of the hopes and fears, the aspirations and the anxieties of given periods of time, from the revolution when there were pro-patriot songs and pro-British songs, through Vietnam when there were anti-war songs and songs that were supporting the troops in a very traditionally patriotic way. And so the book is an attempt to tell the story of the country through the window, through the angle of vision of music that spoke to a particular public moment. To call me a musician would be to devalue the term to meaninglessness. I can't carry a tune. I guess I could carry an instrument if handed one, but I wouldn't even want to try that. I love singing hymns, but my children don't like me to do that. So, no, my view of this is as a historian. I've always loved country music. I've always loved Johnny Cash. I've always, you know, listened to a good bit of the music that's in the book, but never in a connoisseur-like way. David Halberstam, the great nonfiction writer, reporter, historian who died about 15 years ago now, used to say that a nonfiction book should be like a liberal arts education. You should learn something. It should expand you in some ways. It should surprise you as the author as well as the reader. And this is a clear example of that for me. I knew the history. I was less aware of the music that was playing in the background, if you will, of so many of the moments that I've spent a lot of time thinking about, whether it's the Civil Rights Movement or World War II or World War I or the Founding Era or the Civil War, 9-11. There's a school of thought in history that cultural history is often overlooked because of the predominance of political history. 
And this is an attempt in a small way to say to people, if you're going to be engaged in the American past, which I think is absolutely essential, if we don't have a conversation with the past, we foreclose the possibility of having a particularly productive conversation, it seems to me, about the future. If you're going to be involved in that conversation, don't simply limit yourself to the presidential history of a given era, but actually listen to the music people were playing. Find out what books they were reading. Find out what the people who were powerless and were agitating for a fuller application of what Jefferson meant when he wrote the most important sentence in the English language, that all men are created equal. What were those folks spending their time doing? Their stories matter as much as the stories of the powerful. And so this book is an attempt to cast a wider net, widen the aperture, if you will, to shift the metaphor, to bring more people into the conversation about how we got here, and hopefully, therefore, what do we have to do to move forward? It was a humbling experience. Humbling because you realize, A, the difficulty of the sustained vocal performance. You want to repay the listener's time and attention by delivering a illuminating experience. It's not the same as writing a book. And it's not just reading a book. It's actually performing the book. And I think that it requires skills that are not necessarily endemic to the writerly craft. So we'll see if anybody likes it. We'll see how I did. Oh, I'm proudest that I got through the whole damn thing. To be serious about it, I understand that an extraordinary number of people, a growing number of people, encounter texts through audiobooks. It's because of the more mobile society we're in. It's because they're so easily downloadable. It's because people are able, in the era of the iPhone and the device, to entertain themselves constantly. And so my task, it seems to me, as a historian, as someone who tries to tell stories that I think are worth telling, and if I think they're worth telling, then it presupposes I think they're worth hearing or reading. I think we have to be wherever the audience is. If the audience is downloading the audio version and engaging with it that way, then it's an important and even essential part of the enterprise to bring that story not simply to the page, but to the ear. I listen to older books on audio, so Barchester Towers by Anthony Trollope, Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen. I listened to the Iliad not long ago. And what I try to do is listen to works that I have known through the page in order to get a different perspective on them. And so I think the Iliad was the last one I did. That was last winter. And the good news is that my book is shorter than the Iliad. Hi, this is Matt Stanley, author of Einstein's War. I wrote this book because I'm a professor of the history of science, and I usually write for academic audiences, which means my books are read by tens or dozens of people. 
But I think my field has lots of interesting things to say about what science means and how it works and better ways to think about and understand science. So I wrote this book as an attempt to bring some of the insights that my field, History of Science, has had to a broader audience. And along the way, I'm hoping I can teach some science and tell a good adventure story. Recording an audiobook was a real challenge. I've, of course, spoken to many audiences uh, of all different kinds. I've read my own writing out loud many times. I didn't realize that audiobook narration is a whole other genre from those things. The need to construct the narrative solely through my spoken words was at first very frustrating, and then by the end, really rewarding to realize that there was a whole new way to tell the kinds of stories that I'm used to doing in print. And of course, now I have tremendously more respect for the audio narrators out there. This experience has made me think deeply about the narration done by one of the main figures in the book, Arthur Stanley Eddington. So Eddington, in addition to being a great scientist and a great science writer, was also on the BBC narrating his own work on a regular basis. And actually only one of his recordings has survived. Most of them were destroyed during the Blitz in World War II. And some years ago, I had the opportunity to sit and listen to that. This experience of me recording my own audiobook is this interesting kind of connection back to that moment of thinking about him sitting in a recording studio, probably like this, also having to take, you know, eight times to get through a given sentence. One of my big problems with pronunciation was foreign words. There's a lot of German and French in the book, and particularly that American English has ways of pronouncing certain German names and words that don't actually match up to the original German. So having to decide whether to use the correct German, even though it wouldn't be recognized by English speakers, or to use the pronunciation of the word that would be recognized but is technically wrong was actually quite painful sometimes. And the most clear example of that is the title of the book. Einstein is how Americans say the name. The correct pronunciation is Einstein. But if I said that, no one would know what I was talking about. If I didn't narrate this myself, my dream narrator would be Helen Mirren. I think she has a beautifully resonant voice, but also just the right mixture of accessibility and aristocratic flair to really bring the story to life. Hi, this is Steve Shankin. What inspired the Time Twister series for me? Well, it always goes back to one thing, sadly, which is textbook writing. I used to write history textbooks. And I'm really sorry about that. I hate telling kids because I know they get mad about it. But I found so many great stories and so many great characters, and yet they were stuck in these boring books. So what inspired Amelia Earhart and the Flying Chariot was, what if you took a fabulous, fascinating person like Amelia Earhart and let her escape from the boring book and do something that obviously never happened? I get the chance to combine people from history that I find very interesting and then some other time and place that I also find interesting. And create adventures that are funny and wacky and obviously never happen. But there's a great antidote to the boring history that I used to be forced to write for textbooks. I love what Mark Thompson does with the Time Twisters stories. He brings so much energy and fun. You can really tell he's almost laughing as he's reading it, or at least I hear that when I'm listening to it. You know, when I'm writing it all alone in my room, I, I hear it too, but it sounds totally different and really 
really great. He does great voices. He just has a lot of fun with the characters. If I had a favorite kind of setting that we come back to a lot, the classroom is very important in this series. The story's adventures usually begin in this fourth grade classroom with their teacher, Mrs. Maybe, and he just really nails that, that dynamic of the room where they start out trying to do something serious that kids think is going to be boring, and then it kind of just gets out of control into this wacky adventure that the kids and teacher get into and excited about. And he just nails that particular setting so well. The last 10 years or so, I've been doing narrative nonfiction mostly and pretty serious stories, you know, World War II stories, civil rights, spy stories. And so it's a big change of pace to do this inventive fiction. A lot of it is the same. I mean, in terms of they're both historically based. And there's a lot of research to both, which I really love. And the figuring out how to tell a story, how to put things in order, that's all the same. But there's obviously also really very big differences. The biggest one is I get to make stuff up. I mean, when I'm doing these serious nonfiction books, there'll often be a scene, you know, an argument that I know happened, but I can't flesh it out. I can't present it the way you would in fiction or in a movie because I'm obviously not allowed to write dialogue. But now I can take stories and set them up any way I want, and I can write the scenes and the jokes. That's really what got me into this as a kid, was thinking maybe I'd be good at writing and drawing funny stories. I always love to draw comics, and so it's kind of a full circle for me to come back to what got me inspired to be a writer, which is to try and make people laugh. I've gotten a lot of kind of memorable comments about the audiobooks. There's something about my work that inspires backhanded compliments. I don't know why, but if it's an adult, it's going to be something like, oh, I don't really like history, but your books are pretty good. And I get the kid version of that a lot, which I actually consider a great compliment. They'll say, you know, I don't know. And with the audio books, it usually has to do with being in a car. It's usually we were going on a family road trip and they forced me to listen to one of your audio books. And at first I was really wary and worried because it was history. And then I listened to it and I really loved it. And I've heard various versions of that compliment many times. And I really do call it a compliment because, first of all, we're winning them over. And the performance of the audiobook has a lot to do with that. But it's also, I was that kid. You know, I was that kid in the back seat saying, uh-oh, is this going to be boring? I have a lot of great memories of being read to as a kid, both by my parents and my teacher. I had one great teacher named Mr. Linderman. Whether it was epic stories from history or I think a lot of it was kind of Homer, you know, Odyssey, Iliad stories. And they just would seem to go on for weeks at a time. And even if I can't remember the specifics of the story, I remember the feeling. And so I can still reach for that when I'm trying to write and imagine stories. And that goes on today. I love to read to my own kids. My daughter doesn't always sit still for it. Now she's a little older. But my son, who's nine, totally still into it. We'll go back and forth, actually. We'll you know, I'll read a chapter and then he'll take one and we could work our way through entire series that way. We love action adventure stuff. So we're reading the spy school books now. We really still do it every night. I listen to audiobooks all the time and, and I love the variety. You know, if it's just me, I'm into really dark Scandinavian crime stories. But if the kids are in the car, we can put on a series of unfortunate events that works just as well. And also, if I'm researching a particular thing, I love to research by reading nonfiction, but also by listening to fiction that's kind of in that same feel. So now I'm doing 
research for a Cold War thriller. It'll be nonfiction, but I'm listening to things like Fail Safe and The Manchurian Candidate and just the brilliance of both the stories and the storytelling of the narrator helped me imagine the kind of feel, the mood that I want to capture in my own writing. What I love about audiobooks is just how portable it is, how you can take it anywhere. It's part of my work. I visit a lot of schools. I'll do a lot of driving to do these events. And I actually look forward to these three, four-hour trips. I don't mind if there's traffic even, if I have an audiobook on. It's like a movie. I mean, way back when, when I was a kid, I, all I wanted to do was make movies. And maybe there's something about it that's kind of a combination of the best of a book and a movie. You're hearing the story, but you're also actively participating in a way you wouldn't do if you were staring at a screen. You're actively creating images in your head. And there's something about that combination that's both very entertaining and you sort of lose track of time. And it really does make a three-hour drive into a pleasure for me. This is the Author is a production of Penguin Random House Audio. Thank you for listening. For more behind-the-mic content and audiobook recommendations, visit www.penguinrandomhouseaudio.com/nextlisten.